This is KPOO in San Francisco at 89.5 FM, and this is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Hanam, broadcasting on KPOO at 89.5 FM, also at kpoo.com, streaming live. My co-host, Jamal Dejani, is out on assignment today. So we're going to be covering a number of topics today, kind of returning a little bit more to what's been happening in the Arab world, the Middle East, and in Palestine. We're going to be covering some situations, especially in in the Gaza Strip, where we have um, some news that is extremely important from a medical and humanitarian perspective. In addition, we'll be getting updates about the situation in the Gulf area, especially in relation to the standoff with Qatar in the GCC. A lot of topics, kind of a return back to the Arab world today. But before I do that, having to do with some domestic issues, uh, having to do with the anti-racist rally against Richard Spencer. Richard Spencer, many of you might know, was one of the leaders of the Charlottesville pro-KKK rally that occurred a couple of months ago. He was scheduled to speak at a few places. Subsequent to that, was shut down, and then more recently had been approved to speak at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida, at a campus rally Today, the governor, as well as the president of the university, uh, had multiple attempts to squash this particular event. Uh, It ended up not happening, and there is quite a firestorm that's occurring right now uh, at the University of Florida. Right now, some 500 police officers have descended on the campus in preparation for this event. Live stream of the video showed community members anti-racist, anti-fascist activists marching and singing, saying, not in my town, not in my state. No, we don't want hate. Uh, Some estimated that at least an additional thousand people have joined this march. Uh, As I mentioned, Richard Spencer is a leading member of what is typically referred to as the alt-right, alternative right, a loosely knit coalition that includes you know, a variety and a mix of uh, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and white nationalists who advocate the separation of races. Inside the auditorium, the audience booed as Spencer actually took the podium. This is uh, according to the Gainesville Sun, a local daily. And he was met with not only boos, but also shouts from the crowd that said, go home, Spencer. According to the Gainesville Sun, which is the local paper there, Spencer became quite uh, flustered. And he actually, this is quite interesting, he, he actually had the audacity to yell back at this community made up uh, of uh, the diverse members of the Gainesville community. You all, you all aren't tolerant. You aren't anything. And then he yelled uh, a number of expletives at them. He went on to say, and this is he's speaking to the crowd that's protesting, you're acting like animals and the communist Antifa that you are. Uh, By early afternoon, at least one person was arrested for carrying a firearm on campus. And Mitch Emerson, a community organizer who was involved with the planning of the 
the anti-Spencer march said protesters were voicing their opposition to a group that poses an imminent threat of violence. Uh, it's curious that Richard Spencer's main analysis is that he's coming to the University of Florida in Gainesville to talk about his protected right for free speech, yet when people were exercising their right of free speech in an attempt to condemn some of his vitriolic and hateful comments, he turned on them. There's a big difference between holding somebody uh, between somebody holding controversial views and uh, saying that we need to ethnically cleanse the country. This was a quote, a quote by one of the organizers. The president of the University of Florida, Mr. Kent Fuchs, urged students and faculty not to follow their, meaning Richard Spence's, game plan. Um, the governor of Florida issued a state of emergency as a result of the University of Florida allowing Spencer's group to control uh, ticket distribution. Uh, apparently, a lot of people were turned away from the event. Um, and Thursday's event is the first high-profile appearance by Richard Spencer since his Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in Virginia. And uh, that was the country's largest white supremacist protest in decades. And just to remind people, that was the day that uh, that uh, peaceful protester was run over and killed, basically murdered by a white supremacist uh, um, who drove his car into the protesters um, at the Charlottesville rally. Uh, originally, Spencer had applied for a permit to speak at the University of Florida on September 12th citing public safety in the wake of Charlottesville. The university did not originally grant Spencer a permit. There were threats of legal action. And then um, finally, the University of Florida caved in. Rick Scott, the governor, declared, as I noted above, a state of emergency. And he said that he found that the threat of potential uh, of the of the great potential for threat is imminent, and that's why he declared the state of emergency. Apparently, the um, situation remains remains somewhat fluid. Um, ahead of Spencer's speech, this was yesterday, one of the largest pro neo-Nazi websites in the country urged its followers to hold impromptu demonstrations outside of Jewish and African American institutions in Gainesville. And the site's follower, this is the site of the Daily Stormer, Andrew Anglin, instructed followers to cover racist or explicitly Nazi tattoos and dress in a manner that doesn't identify them as white supremacists. It's kind of interesting. What's the old saying? You can, you can put a lipstick on, lipstick on a pig and it's still a pig. But it's interesting that they were encouraging their neo-Nazi and white supremacist uh, followers to cover their tattoos so that they couldn't be identified as being white supremacists. He continued to call for flash protests out of, outside of Jewish-owned businesses and also outside of black cultural and uh, black businesses in the Gainesville area. As I mentioned, the situation continues to be fluid. We'll keep you up to date as more information comes in. But we're going to take a short musical break, and when we come back, 
We'll either have updates for you about the Spencer Rally, or we're going to go directly to news and updates from the Arab world. This is Arab Talk on KPOO. We're in San Francisco at 89.5 FM. We'll be right back. All right, this is Arab Talk on KPOO in San Francisco at 89.5 FM. I'm broadcasting live from San Francisco. This is Jeshan Nam. Um, there are no further updates about the Richard Spencer event at the uh, University of Florida in Gainesville. We're monitoring the situation very carefully. We do know that he was booed and heckled off the stage. The latest information we have right now is that he's actually left the stage. We don't have any other information about his whereabouts or any other um, violence or arrests that have been made uh, since that time. Moving to Palestine now, within the last 24 hours, uh, the Israeli occupation forces have closed three media companies uh, in the West Bank. The, um, today, early morning, Israeli forces closed eight branches, eight branch offices of three media companies for the West Bank. These are companies that provide media services in the Nablus area, the Hebron area, the Ramallah area, and in Bethlehem. These companies are Palmedia, Ram, Sat, and Transmedia. And noting that the offices were rented by the channels of Al-Quds, Al-Aqsa, and Palestine today. Even though these were in Area A, and uh, as many of our listeners know, Area A uh, in the West Bank are areas of total, uh, this can't see my air quotes, but allegedly total Palestinian sovereignty. The Israeli military confiscated the broadcasting devices and equipment, closed the offices for six months without identifying the reasons, in addition to arresting two journalists in the Hebron office. According to the Palestine Center for Human Rights, these decisions and calls of uh, th these decisions to close uh, these media centers are contravene everything we know about international law, and they're calling upon the international community, community to put pressure back on the Israeli forces to end their attacks against Palestinian media facilities. These attacks have been part of a systematic attempt to silence voices, independent voices actually, even though some of these media centers are uh, connected to the Palestinian Authority. At least two of them are independent media services and uh, who are broadcasting daily about uh, uh, violations of human rights and international law that the Israeli military engage in. At approximately uh, 1 a.m. Uh, Wednesday, yesterday, the Israeli mi military moved into the Nablus uh, area and raided the office of PAL Media Company for media services. They confiscated the company's broadcasting, production, and distribution equipment and then closed it with an iron plate. So essentially, they go to the office, they confiscate all the equipment, and the door to the office is essentially sealed shut with an iron plate. They fixed on the outside door sign, uh, 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 basically a signed statement that was signed, Commander of the Israeli Defense Forces in Judea and Samaria. So 
they don't. I mean, this is something we've talked about quite a bit on Arab Talk here because when when people will speak about what's happening in Palestine, and you know, part of the uh, mainstream media puts out this narrative about how Palestinians don't acknowledge, you know, the existence of Israelis or the state of Israel. It's just the the irony is that. Israelis don't even refer to the West Bank as the West Bank. They don't even refer to Palestinians as Palestinians. They call call them Arabs. And rather than talk about the West Bank, they refer to it as Judea and Samaria. Um, so this uh, notice of closing of the office was signed by the commander of the IDF of Judea and Samaria, stating that the company, this closing the company is necessary. They raided, they then raided the offices of Transmedia and the RAM SAT companies for media services. They confiscated broadcasting production and distribution equipment. They closed the company again with an iron gate and also signed the same statement. Simultaneously, Israeli military uh, raided a building in the Hebron area that included the offices of various media companies and channels. This included offices of Al-Quds Channel, Al-Aqsa TV, Transmedia Company, Pal Media Company, and they, erected the, they arrested the director of the Transmedia Company journals, Amr Mohammed Al-Jabari. They arrested him actually in his house in uh, Nemra, which is a neighborhood uh, near Hebron, they arrested his brother, who was the company's administrative director, both uh, at their homes, and they took them both to an unknown destination. The same notice was affixed to that door. Also around the same time, the Israeli military raided forces of broadcasting and media production companies in Ramallah, which also included Ramsat, Transmedia, and Palmedia, seizing the equipment, the videotapes, and all the production equipment. Eyewitnesses at the scene said that Israeli forces raided Palestine building in Ramallah, which also included a range of independent media companies, as well as damaging not only the equipment, but the elevators to get to these offices. They prevented anyone from entering or leaving the building, seized the equipment, and then ordered the owners to close their companies for six months and threatened whomever disobeys the orders. The irony of seizing and the equipment and closing the companies for six months, the six-month time frame is very ironic because what the Israeli military typically does with Palestinians is that they arrest Palestinians and put them on administrative detention. They detain them. They don't tell them what their charges are. They're not allowed to be represented by an attorney directly. And this uh, administrative detention, without being known what the charges are, run for six-month intervals. So we see the six-month interval of not only arresting people, but also of shutting down independent media sources that are running in Palestine right now. Now, not content to close uh, these offices in three major cities in Palestine, they also, the Israeli military, went to Bethlehem and seized the equipment from the Pal Media Company and said that a large force of Israeli soldiers raided Pal Media 
which is in their offices are at the center of Bethlehem, breaking the main door, confiscating production equipment, damaging others, and then sealing the door. This is a pattern, as we know, of uh, damaging, destroying, and disrupting aspects of Palestinian civil society. No notice or rationale was given, but it is it is profoundly disturbing that attacks on the media, especially independent media in Palestine, are not being noticed internationally. We call on the international community to issue demands that these independent media centers actually be allowed to uh, work and produce independent media uh, throughout Palestine. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the situation in Gaza, which has escalated in a very negative way in the last few months. This is Arab Talk on KPOO in San Francisco. We're at 89.5 FM. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. This is Arab Talk on KPOO. We're in San Francisco, 89.5 FM, and streaming live on KPOO.com. We're returning to Palestine today, and we're going to kind of be going back between uh, uh, the West Bank and Gaza, maybe be able to discuss some aspects of what's happening in 48. But there's so much going on. We've covered so many things over the last couple of weeks, kind of lost track of what's been happening in Gaza. And Gaza, as we know... Hopefully we remember and we try not to forget that the siege of Gaza has been going on for um, almost 10 years now. And that illegal siege in Gaza has strangled uh, Palestinians living in Gaza who honestly live in what could be seen as the largest uh, prison or detention center in the world. Some 1.8 million Palestinians living on this little strip of land on the Mediterranean um, essentially cut off from the external world, not allowed to trade freely, not allowed to move freely for sure, and kind of being stuck uh, on all sides by land, by sea, and by air. Um, even the border with Egypt, which periodically opens for medical emergencies on occasion, but the trade between Egypt and Palestine um, has essentially slowed to a trickle, if anything. Just enough food is allowed in to leave what some Israeli politicians have, have said in the past is a starvation diet for Palestinians living in Gaza, which means allowing enough calories to get in, enough to barely keep people alive, but not to thrive. So October 17th marks International Day for the Eradication of Poverty, and this was established by the United Nations in 1992. In the case of Palestine, especially the situation in, in the Gaza Strip, it's especially important to remember the immense poverty that Palestinian civilians in Gaza are subject to on a regular basis. Um, that's not to say that the situation in Jerusalem and the West Bank is not critical. It very much is. But in the Gaza Strip, poverty rates have spiked sharply since September 2007 when the Israeli Security 
cabinet declared the Gaza Strip a hostile entity and stepped up the restrictions to full closure coupled with a naval blockade. So, yeah, we're now at the 10-year anniversary of the seizure and closure and blockade of Gaza. An access restricted area, which is comprised of 17% of Gaza's total area and 35% of the agricultural lands, was declared uh, off limits basically in 2009. And it basic this closure means that the closure of Gaza's customs registers. It limits the de facto movement of people and goods to and from the Gaza Strip. In the meantime, in the ensuing 10 years or so, the Israeli military on a regular basis, as we know, in 2008, 2009, 2012, 2014, systematically destroys not only people and buildings, but um, in a rather uh, disturbing uh, development in their warfare, destroys agricultural, industrial, and commercial infrastructure. This is on top of restricting imports, as I noted above. A sharp increase in the unemployment rates in Gaza and the number of people living in what we as uh, we term abject poverty, which is essentially people living on less than $2 a day. I, I really want to encourage our listeners to try to imagine what it's like to live on $2 or less a day. And uh, over 65% of Palestinians living in Gaza live on less than $2 a day. Um, this literally, at all levels, uh, restricts the growth of Gaza, the growth of its economy, the growth of its community, the growth of its infrastructure, and at a very profound level, the physical growth of, of uh, children who are born into this abject poverty. Uh, in speaking with pediatricians and physicians in Gaza who, who note the growth curves, of children who are born into Gaza in this last 10 years, we see dramatic increases in the amount of stunting, which is uh, delayed growth physically that Palestinian children in Gaza have been experiencing. Unemployment rates in the Gaza Strip are as high as 42%. That's the general unemployment rate. The unemployment rate among youth is closer to 70%. Um, the the poverty line, which is two two dollars uh, living on two dollars a day, you have large numbers of Palestinians, as I mentioned above. But surprisingly and rather disturbingly, twenty two percent live in what could be termed as abject poverty, which really amounts to living on less than even probably a dollar a day. Uh, having been to Gaza many times, I could tell you that most of the children there. Um, who, who don't have access to regular food sources generally are living on less than about a meal a day. And that meal cannot be construed in any way to represent a comprehensive, balanced, nutritional kind of caloric intake for these kids. They, they really are starving to death. So um, in acknowledgement of, of that International Day for the Eradication of Poverty, we call especially on the international community and calling on all people of conscience to not forget about the people of Gaza who continue to live under the brutal uh, blockade 
by land, by sea, and by air, and not just by the Israeli military, but also by the Egyptians. We're going to take a short musical break. We're at the bottom of the hour already. This is KPOO. We're in San Francisco at 89.5 FM, and we're streaming live on KPOO.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Arab Talk on KPOO in San Francisco. We're at 89.5 FM. This is Jessica Nam. So continuing with the story of what, what's been happening in Gaza, we, we just left this analysis about the situation regarding poverty and the abject poverty and devastating poverty, different levels of poverty, but basic poverty in Gaza that has been increasing over the last 10 years now that we're at the 10-year mark of the the siege and closure of Gaza. So as many people know, Gaza is on the Mediterranean. Really, you know, if, if you just look at the sea, really extraordinarily beautiful and, and try not to pay attention to the fact that it's under occupation and under constant surveillance and, and, and essentially in a prison. The one area where there is an attempt to live economically and from a food source independently in Gaza is the fishing industry in Gaza. Now, Palestinians have been fishing in the Mediterranean Gaza for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Gaza has been a major seaport historically for hundreds, if not thousands of years. It's been a transition point that goes back uh, historically. You know, Gaza is where the story of David and Goliath took took place. It's uh, where Napoleon hung out for a while before he marched into Egypt. It's quite an amazing place. So, but the fishing of, uh, of fishing off the waters in Gaza have, has always been a source of uh, protein, obviously, for Palestinians living in Gaza for time immemorial. One of the things that the Israeli military continues to do is um, harass, detain, destroy uh, all attempts to legitimately fish off the waters of Gaza. Now, the international waters in Gaza are, are very, very, uh, uh, the, the distance is quite large. You know, some people 10 to 12 mile, nautical miles. However, Palestinian fishermen in Gaza are frequently harassed shot at, detained, arrested, if they venture even sometimes as as little as a mile out. Well, just a day ago, um, um, probably was Tuesday or Wednesday, Wednesday our time, the Israeli Navy arrested four Palestinian fishermen, confiscated their boat in two separate incidents. The arrests, which were carried out in quick succession, took place this is at one nautical mile off the shore of the area of Al-Waha. And this is west of Beit Lahia in the northern Gaza Strip. The fishermen were su- subjected to harassment. They were shot at. They were detained. And their f- fishing ve- uh, vessels were confiscated by the Israeli Navy. The fishermen in Palestine, especially the ones in Gaza, are the, are the most vulnerable targets uh, by the Israeli military. And as we noted in our previous segment, you know, Palestinians are an extraordinarily resilient uh, group of individuals and community. 
and, you know, whatever it takes to survive despite the situation of, of occupation and, and depression, they do what they can. And fishing in Gaza remains uh, an inalienable international right that Palestinians have always had. And despite the international waters going out as long as, you know, as I mentioned, 10 nautical miles, now the Israelis sometimes claim it's six nautical miles, but be it as it may, be that as it may, Palestinian fishermen just yesterday have gotten arrested and shot at and had their fishing vessels confiscated again for being literally about a, a one nautical mile out from shore. Now, the waters in Gaza, in terms of fish, present a couple of very difficult challenges. One, if you only go out one nautical mile, those those areas are over-harvested, and there may not be a lot of fish to, to actually uh, catch. And from a um, health and uh, health standpoint, because the Israelis have destroyed the the kind of the sewage system and the sewage treatment plant in Gaza, frequently the sewage from the the main Gaza city um, uh, facilities simply just goes into the water uh, without being processed. And there are numerous reports of people getting sick, getting hepatitis, getting various bacterial infections. And so fishermen obviously want to go as far out as possible to minimize the risk of toxic infestation of, of fish that, that, you know, who, that are caught closer to shore. And even here, about a mile out, we find that Palestinian fishermen are getting harassed and being detained and having their livelihood um, in question. In this particular incident, two fishermen, Tariq al-Sultan, who's only 22, and Mohammed Yazid, 23, both residents of Beit Lahia, were at gunpoint ordered to strip off their clothes, jump into the water, and swim to the Israeli boat after they confiscated their boat, dumped all of the uh, fish that they had caught out of their boat. They were detained, and um, we haven't heard anything more from what happened to these uh, Palestinian fishermen. Uh, Approximately 15 minutes after the first incident, the Israeli Navy arrested uh, Fuad al-Sultan, and Mahmoud al-Sultan using the same tactics. So since the beginning of 2017, the Israeli Navy has opened fire 142 times on Palestinians fishing in the Gaza Strip, killing two Palestinian fishermen, injuring 10, and uh, basically decimating uh, the Palestinian uh, uh, fishing industry, you know, an attempt again to be able to fish independently, uh, to be able to just feed, uh, you know, the population in Gaza with some calories and not be totally dependent on the Israeli military to let in whatever foodstuffs they will left in. We're going to continue to follow this story, obviously. It um, is part of a, a growing, bleak picture of what's happening. I know that on Arab Talk, we've had to cover so many topics that we tend to lose sight of what happens in Gaza and in the West Bank and Jerusalem sometimes. But um, it's important to note that, especially in light of the 10-year tragic uh, anniversary of the siege of Gaza. We're going to take another short musical break, and then we come back. I've already, I'm going to talk a little bit about Yemen because um, I've gotten a bunch of texts, emails, 
from people to to just uh, ask me to give them quick updates on what's happening in Yemen. Stay tuned. This is Arab Talk on KPOO. We're in San Francisco. We're at 89.5 FM, and we'll be right back. All right, this is KPOO in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk. We're at 89.5 FM. This is Jess Hanam broadcasting live from the Bay. We continue to offer our thoughts and prayers and condolences, obviously, to those that were lost in the North Bay fires in Napa, Sonoma, and in Santa Rosa, as well as the fires all throughout Northern California and in Southern California. Uh, Again, as is typical for the news cycle, those fires continue to rage. They are not completely contained. They continue to find people who perished to this day. It's a very gruesome scene. People are still living in relocation centers. Approximately 6,000 buildings, homes were, were destroyed, and it's, it continues to be quite a crisis. We also want to send our our thoughts, prayers, uh, and shout-outs to our brothers and sisters in Puerto Rico, where only 29% of Puerto Ricans, uh, as of today, have electricity. Uh, less than that have access to water. Uh, far less than that have access to, to, to food and to medicine. The situation in Puerto Rico continues to be catastrophic and uh, we want our brothers and sisters in Puerto Rico to know that we, we have not forgotten. We are there for you and uh, keep up the struggle. Speaking of struggle, you know, we have not uh, paid enough attention to the situation in Yemen. Yemen is a catastrophe, and um, we don't hear anything about the situation in Yemen. Yemen has a major cholera epidemic right now. Uh, its civil infrastructure has been utterly destroyed, whether it's the, uh, the ability of its civil services to provide any kind of services are completely destroyed, be it adequate water, adequate housing, adequate medical supplies, let alone adequate safety, um, what is really disturbing among many of the things that, are, that is happening in Yemen right now is that Yemen, like Syria, like a lot of the places right now where there are active military engagements, it is a proxy war. And what a proxy war means is that larger powers are getting other players to fight what appear to be local skirmishes in a place like Yemen, let's say, uh, describing it as somehow a battle between opposing forces in Yemen. But in fact, when you dig below the surface, even just a little bit, you begin to see a picture of a very disturbing play with uh, superpowers, with high-tech militaries wrecking havoc on the civilian population in Yemen. It's it's devastating. One of the things that, that has not come out is that uh, actually the UAE, United Arab Emirates, is involved in carrying out 
a a systematic uh, torture campaign so that when they do capture uh, Yemeni citizens or, or Yemeni military or paramilitary personnel, they're being subjected to a torture program that is very similar to the torture program that was seen at U.S. black sites, that was seen in Abu Ghraib, that was seen at Bagram, that was seen throughout uh, during the reign of the torture programs that the United States sponsored. What is ironic and, and questionable and disturbing is that you have a U.S. ally, the UAE, who is carrying out and executing this torture program on uh, uh, the Yemeni population uh, as we speak. Equally disturbing is the fact that the main military force in Yemen right now, the military that's you know basically wrecking the most havoc on the Yemeni civilian population is the, uh, is the military of Saudi Arabia. Where does Saudi Arabia get its weapons from? It gets its weapons from primarily the United States. It also gets it from the United Kingdom, some from France, but the majority of the heavy weaponry and the majority of the Saudi military gets its backing and its support from the United States. And it's now engaged in what many are describing are grotesque violations of international law as well as humanitarian law. We know that the United, Nation, uh, the United Nations, as well as the UK government, is monitoring the situation very carefully. The cholera epidemic is out of control. Getting supplies, food and medicine into Yemen is very difficult right now. There is a de facto news blackout. It's very difficult to get any kind of information about what is happening in Yemen. But just to give you an idea of some of the players that are involved in this, this is not a fight between, simply a fight between uh, opposing factions within Yemen. What you have is Saudi Arabia, who is leading the coalition of a multinational force that includes Kuwait, Bahrain, UAE, as I stated above, Egypt, Jordan, Morocco, the Sudan of all places, Malaysia and Senegal, with the support and technical support of the United States, the UK, France, Turkey, and Belgium. That's on one side. Now, the, the, the quote, other side in the opposing military action, which is being funded by Russia, China, and Iran. So if this sounds kind of familiar, where you have Iran and Russia and in this case, China on one side, and then you have the U.S., Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Bahrain, Egypt, Jordan, Morocco on the other. If that sounds familiar, it is, because it's basically the same lineup that we see in Syria and in other places. And tragically, in both places like Syria as well as in Yemen, we're seeing the complete and utter destruction of civilian lives, civilian infrastructure, and it's unclear how Yemen will come back and rebuild itself. These attacks, these military attacks on innocents uh, don't seem to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, stopping at any time in the foreseeable future. So we're going to continue to, to report on what's happening in Yemen. I've been trying to get through to some of my colleagues who can report on the cholera epidemic. We haven't been able to get through. 
as I said, uh, you know, the, the civil infrastructure, electricity, water, food distribution has been uh, uh, systematically destroyed. Well, we've come to another end of Arab Talk. We want to thank you for joining us today. We've got a great show lined up next week. Uh, I'm hoping you'll uh, stay eagerly tuned. We have a great guest next week. Professor Bill Mullen from the University of uh, from Purdue University, who's being harassed. We'll be speaking with Professor Mullen next week. Send us your comments to ArabTalk at kpoo.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>